Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Catholics Against Militarism podcast. I'm Ellen, and I'm back. Well, I'm not totally back, but um, I realize it's been a minute since I've published a podcast, and I'm sorry about that. Um, Life has gotten in the way the last couple of years with the podcast, and things have been very busy. Um, But I really wanted to do a podcast today because it's August 8th, and tomorrow will be August 9th. And if you've ever listened to our podcast before, you know that August 9th is an important day. Um, I'll go ahead and link to something in the comments if you would like to read it about August 9th, written by Father Emmanuel Charles McCarthy. Um, but it's a, it's an important day. It was the day that um, the bomb was dropped on uh, Nagasaki in Japan during World War II. And um, for many years, Father McCarthy has done a 40-day fast for nonviolence leading up to August 9th, um, which was also the day that he was ordained. And he has been a guest on the podcast many times. So I always uh, pause when it comes to August 9th, and even though I haven't had time to do a lot of podcast episodes, um, I thought I needed to do something for peace today. Um, I've been thinking a lot about George Sabelka, and actually I'm working on a book about him, which is uh, not about him really, but um, I'm working on a book that involves him. And um, if you don't know who Father George Zabelka is, you might want to check out episode 50. We did a show on him. But anyway, I had uh, asked to get some of his papers that were being kept at um, in Wisconsin at a university. It was several months ago. I don't even remember uh, what university it was, but I got some of his papers and was reading through them. And it was really interesting. I found a story that somebody wrote. I'm not exactly sure who wrote it. Um, It may have been Father Zabelka. He may have been writing about himself in the third person. Um, But it's a story. It's it's called From Widgeon to Wawa, a description of a journey taken by Fathers John Shinners, William Malowitz, George Zabelka, and Brother Amard Salzman down the Pukawa River. Sorry if I'm pronouncing that wrong. Uh, Michigan people, Pukasqua, Pukasqua River, and along the North Superior shoreline to Michipokitan Harbor in a 17-foot groom and lightweight canoe, lightweight canoe, and a 16-foot U.S. rubber Royal Light canoe, from July 29th to August 13th, 1962. I read this several months ago, and it really had an effect on me. Uh, Maybe it's a little off-topic for a War and Peace podcast, but I think it's something about peace. And um, Father Zabelka used to give out buttons that said, do something for peace. And so this is what I'm doing for peace today, um, on this eve of August 9th. Um, And I guess with everything going on in the world, you know, the metaverse is the new thing, right? Well, this... Reading this aloud, these, this essay, this story about a real-life trip um, taken, it's just, I think, the best protest against the metaverse that I can possibly think of. So I'm going to read it in protest of the metaverse. Um, for those of you who might be listening on YouTube, uh, just real quick before I get started, um, my channel was suspended back on January 1st. Because I, uh, well, for wrong think, you know, thought crime. Um, so they, they gave me two strikes, YouTube did. And they said, if you get another strike, we're taking down your whole channel. So, you know, they can go back to anything that you've said or published on your channel and just comb through it and find something they don't like and, and give you that third strike. It's not like they have, you know six months from the time that you publish something on YouTube to strike you out. Oh no, they can go back to anything and strike you out. So what I did was I had to go take down a lot of my satire that I did back in 2020 um, at the beginning of the Great Reset. Um, So I had to go take down a lot of those videos and I just took down anything I thought they might strike out because for those of you who are listening on YouTube, you know, I didn't want to lose touch with you. I don't know who you are. Maybe you're just all a bunch of bots. I don't know. Maybe you're not real people. Um, But I would like to uh, move my podcast somewhere else, but I haven't figured out where to do that yet. 
Um, so, you know, before I migrate, I, I will maybe leave a comment or something and let me know where to go. But um, I would like to kind of get that figured out before I continue publishing podcasts because it's it's hard to keep putting stuff out there when you know it's just going to be deleted eventually. But anyway, we'll do it. We'll do it anyway. I, I'm going to come back and, and start the podcast soon. I did have a couple of other announcements for those of you who've been tuning into the podcast for a while. Um, sadly, Jim Forrest has passed away. Um, I, I, I interviewed Jim in episode 40, and I had the pleasure of meeting him in person um, at Jim and Shelley Douglas's down in Birmingham one year when he was giving their uh, Lenten retreat talk. Um, and he was just a really, really cool guy, and I enjoyed interviewing him a lot, and he wrote a lot of great books. So say a prayer for him. Um, God rest his soul. And then John Carmody has passed away as well. I interviewed John in episode four. He was one of my um, first interviews that I did on the podcast, and he was just a, such an incredibly great guy. I got to meet him in person, too. Um, he worked with Father McCarthy for many, many years, and helped in many ways to get um, the message of gospel nonviolence out. Former former Marine, former military, and just a wonderful person. So say a prayer for him as well. And if you want to learn more about George Zabelka, who is featured in the essay I'm about to read, you can check out episode 50 for that. But I hope you like this essay as much as I do. It had quite an effect on me when I read it first a few months ago. So I'll go ahead and get start get started. From Widgeon to Wawa, a description of a journey taken by fathers John Shinners, William Melowitz, George Zabelka, and brother Amard Salzman down the Pukawa River and along the North Superior shoreline to Michipicotin Harbor in a 17-foot Grumman lightweight canoe and a 16-foot U.S. rubber Royalite canoe from July 29th to August 13th, 1962. With camping gear and food packs all checked out after many pleasant winter months of planning and expectation, Father Bill, Brother Amard, and myself left Sacred Heart Church, Flint, Michigan, after the early masses, about 10 o'clock a.m. on July 29th. We had checked with Carl Kidder of Baldwin, Michigan, on the condition of the Pukawal River and the portages, that in the, and the portages involved. He had marked a map for us, indicating the portages they had taken, stressing especially the bad portage about halfway down. Carl Kidder had taken the trip in a party of four in June of this year. Their party was the third known party ever to have gone down this river. The Dr. Calkins party had taken this trip in July of 1956. Another party had taken it sometime between that year and 1962. No party had ever gone down the river in August, when the water was lowest. We foolishly, as we found out later, dared to walk, and I mean walk, where, angel, where angels feared to tread. Carl Kidder, with a companion, had attempted to go down the Pukawa River to the Fox River and then up to Widgeon Lake in 1961, but they miscalculated the distances and lost their way. They thought they had passed the mouth of the Fox River, and actually they had not yet reached it. They sent up smoke signals on a small lake and were flown out one by one, but had to leave their gear behind, which was later retrieved by Indian guides. Father Shinners left early in the week for our stellar Stella Mart's cabin on the Black River near Gaylard. Gaylord. Our plans were to meet him there, consolidate our gear, and plan and leave for Wawa to take an early 8 o'clock a.m. plane for Widgeon Lake, our jumping-off spot. We arrived at the Stella Mart... Sorry, Stella Maris... About 2.30 p.m., where Father John was preparing a 10-pound goose, shot the previous fall for supper. His faithful companion, Bruno, Father Zabelka's dog, watched the pleasant proceedings with lively interest. He did not venture too far into the woods that day, since he had a very unpleasant experience with a porcupine earlier in the week, requiring the services of a veterinarian in Gaylord. Jerry Saint Sana, who had been on many other canoe trips in Canada and the Upper Peninsula, was also there to see us off. His young dog, Nicky, a robust elk hound, was having a great time on the Black River complicating Jerry's attempts to catch the wily speckled trout by frequently swimming across the river in front of him in the most promising holes. After a very substantial supper of wild goose, 
topped by an apple pie dessert, baked by Father George, which incidentally was his first attempt at a pie baking, the group made a final check on their gear, maps, equipment, etc., and left for Wawa about 9 o'clock p.m. In planning this trip, food had been carefully considered. We knew there would be much portaging and walking through shallow riverbeds and slippery rocks. Therefore, the minimum weight in food and equipment was the great concern. We planned to have fresh fish as a regular part of our diet, but from previous trips, we knew fish alone did not give the necessary strength and energy for prolonged physical exertion. Having studied the, and read many books about the earlier voyagers and explorers of the Canadian waterways, we had come to the conclusion that the staple diet of beans, bacon, and bannock, with plenty of dried fruits, especially prunes, should be our mainstay. We took 14 packages of pre-cooked Hallmark dried beans, four boxes of Bisquick mix, about eight pounds, three boxes of pancake flour, 20 pounds of bacon, about four pounds of sugar, and 14 boxes of dried fruits. There were also a few extra, like a box of cocoa, containers of ketchup, three big jars of coffee, tea, salt, and pepper, a ranch-style dinner for six, two boxes of dried potatoes, a cake mix with frosting to be used on August 6th, Father Malowitz's birthday, and oh yes, another staple, a gallon jerry jug of snakebite medicine. This additional item made our staple foods, the four Bs, beans, bacon, bannock, and brandy. In our food packs, two waterproof rubber carrying packs, we also included 14 dried soup mixes, a supply of bouillon, bouillon cubes, tea bags, a jar of oleo, a can of dried mustard, which we never used. It may be of value to note that our food planning proved to be very accurate, except for sugar, which ran low toward the end of the trip because of extensive use for syrup and pancakes. Also, we overplanned on coffee. Two 10-ounce jars would have been more than adequate. Our sugar needs were supplemented, however, during the trip by having blueberries and raspberries for dessert. During this month, there was plentiful supply of these berries all along our trip, although in certain sections we had been preceded, preceded by bear and seagulls, who also looked upon these as delicacies. After a rather uneventful ride in Father Bill's station wagon equipped with two air mattresses in the back for alternate sleeping and driving purposes, we arrived in Wawa about 6 a.m. on a foggy, rainy, very discouraging-looking morning. It looked bad for flying that day, and this was essential for even starting our long-awaited trip down the Pukawa. We had made arrangements earlier with Mr. Deluce of the White River Airlines to fly us into Widgeon Lake, from where we would portage about one and a half miles to the Pukawao River and start our voyage. The parenthesis indicate that there was little of the voyage in our trip, which consisted mostly of walking over slippery rocks, dragging our canoes, or fighting our way carrying packs and canoes over long, overgrown lumber and portage trails. Running the rapids on this trip, we found out later, meant actually running with our feet, pushing and pulling our canoes in the process. This was Monday, July 30th, however, the day on which our trip was to start, so with hopes high that the weather would clear, we stopped for breakfast at the pleasant little restaurant just outside Wawa at about 6.30 a.m. It was here that Brother Amard innocently asked a very tired-looking young waitress if she had any pep. She didn't. Also, bro <laughs> also, Brother seemed very surprised at our substantial breakfast orders of bacon and eggs, asking, aren't we going to have lunch this noon? We had been on similar trips before, and as Brother Amard found out, we had our lunch this day at 8 o'clock p.m. on our first campsite on the Pukawa. After obtaining our travel permit at the Department of Lands and Forest, we went to the airline's wharf and waited for the pilot. It was still foggy with the threat of rain. Finally, he showed up about 9 a.m. The weather reports were not too favorable, but with luck we might make it in the afternoon. We waited, hopefully. Finally, about 2.30 p.m., the clouds did lift, so that you could see the surrounding hills. This was it! We would fly. Very quickly, half the gear was loaded into the waiting Cessna 180, and the 17-foot Grumman was tied to the left foot float. Father Shinners and Malowitz, Fathers Shinners and Malowitz had won the toss, so they went first. When Brother Emert and I arrived at Widgeon Lake about one and a half hours later, they had already begun the portage of canoe and duffel. 
Okay, sorry, just a random note. I think this is Father George Zabelka writing this. <laughs> he just said I. They came back and helped us across. The portage was a relatively easy one and did not give any indication of what was to come. Finally, we stood on the banks of the Pukawal River, or was it a river? John Pozo of the White River Department of Lands and Forests had warned us that the river might be low, but as we found out, this was the biggest understatement of the year. But so what? This was the Pukawa. This was the river we had planned to conquer, and conquer it we would, come what may. So let's have a drink on the start of the voyage. So the jerry jug was tapped and a libation was offered to whatever river gods the Indians might have invoked in centuries past. Father Bill was appointed keeper of the booze, as we realized that in our two-week trip, careful rationing of this vital staple would be paramount. It was already four o'clock p.m., no time for lunch or unnecessary delay. The blazing fireweed on the bank nodded a stiff fare. Well and a passing whiskey jack greeted us with a raucous cry as we shoved off, literally into what may loosely be described as a current. The river at this point flows over a bed of cobbles and stones of just the right size to make it practically impossible to either ride or walk. There was not enough water to float the canoe with our packs, and yet conditions did not seem to warrant outright carrying of packs and canoes along the shore which was wooded and rocky. So there was only one alternative, push and shove and try to avoid a sprained ankle or a broken leg on, a, on the slippery rocks. There were short pockets of deeper water, of which we meticulously took advantage, and we studied the current with religious concentration, trying to find the deeper channels and rockyless areas to shove our canoes through. As Father's Shinners later remarked, if anyone should ask us in the future, did you see any rocks on this trip, we could answer with an unqualified yes. Father John Shinners, it may be remarked here, is a professor of moral theology at the Catholic University of Washington, D.C., and proved to be a very logical thinker. The above statement is characteristic of his approach to any problem, theological or otherwise. Our party consisted of a varied group. Brother Amard is Director of Vocations for the Holy Cross Brotherhood at Notre Dame. Father Malowitz is pastor of the large, fashionable parish of Holy Rosary in Flint, and Father Zabelka is pastor of Sacred Heart Parish, also in Flint. It must, be get, it must get deeper farther down, was a hopeful comment heard frequently during the next few days. As we pushed and shoved, the sun sank deeper into the west. The thought of a composite campsite began to intrude itself upon our labors. The banks were thickly overgrown and no rock ledges were in evidence. We'll camp at the next good spot, was our unanimous vote, but that good spot just did not seem to appear. Finally, we came to a widening of the river beyond some rapids. A pool which promised good fishing also showed a gravely and stone, a gravelly and stony beach ahead. No time to look for anything better. The sun was almost down. We beached our canoes at our first campsite. This campsite was perhaps the most welcome of the whole trip because we were thoroughly tired. The first day on any trip is the most tiresome. Muscles long unaccustomed to exertion are stiff and flabby. Also, the mental strain is such that it tires one more than the physical exertion. We called our campsite Stony Beach because of the pebbles and cobbles, and the stones came right up to the water. We pitched our tent as best we could on the beach. Our duffel was unpacked, and soon a fire was burning, and we were preparing supper. Father Malowitz already had his spinning rod out and was casting in the rapids that we had just come over. In short order, he caught four or five good-sized trout, which we immediately put on the fire. We cooked our first bacon and beans, using the beachcomber for our table. It did not take long to blow up the rubber mattresses and to prepare our sleeping bags. Then a roaring fire was built on the bank. As we sat around, we speculated as to what tomorrow would bring. Father Shinners and I slept by the campfire for the night. Father Malowitz and Brother Amard used the tent. The sounds of the night were broken only by the ripple of the waters over the rocks and the snoring of Brother Emard. <laughs> Sometimes in the morning, the sun being already risen, we awoke to the sounds of the wilderness about us. Daylight in the swamp. Somebody called, and slowly the stiff, aching, aching muscles responded to the chore of rising and moving again. The fire was relit and water placed to boil, and soon hot coffee made all things worthwhile. Father Malowitz again hooked up his spinning rod and started casting away. Shortly one cry followed another as four nice-sized trout came to rest in the bottom of the canoe. 
While cleaning the trout, Father Bill, in his characteristic, laconic way, asked the question, Hey, do you know what these trout are feeding on? Naturally, we didn't, knowing that some smart reply would be forthcoming. He came over to the fire, holding up a six-inch-long bacon rind that we had thrown into the water the night before. The one trout he had caught had taken it for bait. Perhaps it was the first worm that he had ever seen like that, and certainly the last. Breakfast of trout, pancakes, bacon, soon over. We finished gathering our duffel together, packed it into the canoes, and shoved off, hopefully looking forward to the open water and the canoeing that we had anticipated. This was to be a day that we would never forget. In our original plans, we had hoped to make the Fox River as our first campsite on the first day, and then to make good time until we got past the difficult portage, so that we would have extra time to fish and spend on Lake Superior. The distance on the map from our Monday night camp to Fox River seemed to only be about four or five miles, but finally, after a second day of pushing and shoving, walking and carrying, we arrived at our destination late in the evening. It is difficult to describe this section of water. Suffice to say that it was composed of pebbles, cobbles, rocks, and boulders of various sizes and shapes, and positions with water flowing through this conglomeration opening up here and there into patches of canoeable river. Hardly would we get into the canoes when we would have to disembark and again push and shove to get through the rocks and boulders. For several miles we leapfrogged and we leapfrogged our canoes and baggage, carrying our packs along the banks and slippery rocks, and then returning for another load, coming down three or four hundred yards, then going back for another load, and then coming back for our canoes. Actually, three carries had to be made to transport all of our imped impedimenta. Arriving at the spot, we would travel for a little ways, and then we would start the same process all over again. Late in the afternoon, while carrying along the bank, we looked ahead and saw a sandy spot in the middle of the river. As we approached, we saw it was our destination, the Fox River, entrance to the Pukawa. There was plenty of grass and a good place for a campfire, and also for the canoe which served as a table and washstand and also storage for all the other items, bacon, beans, etc. On the open fire, the bannock was soon baking. Fishing again was in order. It was a nice pool where the Fox River came into the Pukawa. I say Fox River, but like many of the other allusions to the waters here, that was a gross understatement. It seemed like a small creek at this time of the year, coming through the rocks, which formed an entrance to the pool. It was very surprising that we could not catch any fish in this spot, even though it seemed very favorable. Either the water was too low, or else the fish had been warned by their bacon rind, swallowing cousins further up, upstream. Once again, the sun sank, reminding us of those beautiful lines by Longfellow in one of his epics. Slowly, as out of the heavens, with apocalyptical splendors, sank the city of God in the vision of John the Apostle. So, with its cloudy walls of chrysolite, jasper, and sapphire, sank the broad red sun, and the turrets uplifted glimmered the golden reed of the angel who measured the city. In wild, uninhabited lands, there is a sad and lonely feeling that seems to pervade the atmosphere at sunset. Although the day is dying, there is a vibrant feeling that other lives are stirring in the deep recess of the forest. Now the hunter comes out on padded silent feet to begin his nocturnal prowls. The lonely howl of a coyote drifts over the treetops and the wide, wide world shrinks down to the confines of the campfire. For the trapper in the wilds, the voyager or modern camper, home becomes, a circumscribed, becomes circumscribed by this circle of light from the leaping flames of his campfire. Here is security, here is comfort, and dreams that become pale during the struggles of the day are rekindled again in the happy glow of the campfire. Many tales have been told and exploits recounted around the campfire from the tundras of the north to the prairies of the great southwest, and our case was no exception. There were dogmatic statements by Father Shinners backed up by contradictions from Father Melowitz, who was always at his best around a campfire. Rationing carefully the contents of the jerry jug, 
Brother Amard, up to this time, didn't have much to say because he was not quite sure how to take the banterings and seemingly wild statements of the three bearded priests, but as the days went on, he loosened up so that he too would at times say even damn or gaboon when stubbing his toe or catching his foot between slippery rocks. But to get back to the campfire which had served its purpose... It was not long before the sound of sleeping mattresses being blown up took precedence over the talk. This night seemed so clear, and we were so tired it did not seem necessary to pitch a tent. So rolling out the sleepy bags and the pleasant surroundings, we turned in. Once again the darkness of the night took over the glimmering coals of the campfire, which soon faded out of sight. Bright and early Wednesday morning, August 1st, we were up and raring to go. The muscles were not quite so stiff. Or was it perhaps the contents of the hot toddy that Father Malowitz next early in the morning? Today, certainly, we would make the first dam that Carl Kidder had told us was such a good place to fish. Certainly, the river would open up, and we would be able to zip along in our canoes. To be sure, we did canoe about 200 yards, and then there were those rocks again. This day passed as the first and second, walking, pushing, shoving, portaging along the banks, bringing the empty canoes as best we were able to over the rocks. Brother Amard insisted on carrying his share with us, but we saw that his shoes were very inadequate for walking on the slippery rocks, and he was constantly slipping and in danger of spraining an ankle or breaking a leg. It was very imminent. Finally, we insisted he walk along the bank, carrying only a very light pack, while we would portage and carry the rest of the luggage along the slippery rocks. Our reason for this was not because of any charitable feelings toward Brother Amard particularly, but as we told Brother, it was much easier carrying just the pack and not having to carry the pack and him, too, should he fall down and break an ankle. He was very loath to do this, but we finally prevailed upon him, and after he got into the spirit of this procedure, he would walk up ahead and take pictures of the weary voyagers as we would come into the landing. We did not fish much along this stretch of river, although at times we did pick up several speckled trout. We traveled only four or five miles that day and finally came to the Flat Rock campsite. This was too beautiful a camp. The Flat Rock jutted out into the water and a nice pool in front of it. It was here that Father Malowitz caught a five or six pound pike that we baked over the fire Indian fashion without scaling or even cutting off the head or fins, only removing the entrails. The Indians on Lake Lamartra in the Northwest Territory told us about this method of preparing pike. The scales of the, on the fish protected the meat from being burned, and so the whole fish could be placed right on the grate and turned over periodically, and while the outside became black and burned, the inside cooked to a very nice tasty texture. We feasted, we campfire talked, and then again slept like the babes in the woods that we were. There was a little more sober atmosphere in camp this evening, as the experiences of the past three days made us wonder if we would ever get out of this concentration of rocks and stones. After the rosary was said, we watched the dying embers of the campfire, and someone recited the famous verse of Robert W. Service, Ode to a Campfire. O oh, my masters, I am dying, by my fitful flames ye sleep. My purple plumes of glory droop forlorn, Gray ashes cloak and choke me, while above the pines there creep the stealthy silver moccasins of morn. Morning came very soon again, and this was Thursday, August 2nd. Father Bill got us up early with his usual temptation of hot toddy, which is simply water boiled over the fire, to which a very small portion of the rationed grog is added. After a breakfast of bacon, beans, fried potatoes, pike, pancakes, and bannock, we left for open water at 9.30 a.m. It was a beautiful, sunshiny day, and we made very good time. Fishing was not too good. We caught only four or five trout. About three o'clock, we finally came to the dam that we were looking for. It was a tremendous sight. It was high and had originally been built perhaps 50 or 60 years ago in the logging days. It held back the water so that when the logs were gathered together above the dam, the waters could be released and the logs sent down with the, with the current. Now it was falling into ruins, and a great barricade of logs, trees, and trash had piled up against it. There were batches of blueberries growing everywhere. We stopped and picked up as many as we could, fill our, filling our hats and taking them with us to be made into jam for our pancakes, and also for the blueberry bannocks that made up a regular part of our diet. 
There was a beautiful fishing hole just beyond this dam, and we cast into it and caught several nice trout. It was here also that we saw the otter. He would come up out of the water and look around and then go back down and reappear in another place. We would have liked to stay there longer and fish because there must have been some big trout in this hole. It was also a very scenic spot, wild, rugged, with an atmosphere of the old logging days all around us. However, we were already behind schedule, so we went and finally, after several warm miles of garbage, as we began to call it, we pitched camp at a beautiful site on a rock ledge on the right side of the stream. It was about seven o'clock in the evening. Again, as on the past few days, we did not pitch our tent because we had, we had had such nice weather up until now. There were clouds in the sky, and it was doubtful that the weather would continue, but we took the chance. As a precaution, we spread a tarp on the canoe with the understanding that if it should rain, someone should yell rain, and we would all get under the tarp. Sure enough, at 12.30, Shinners yelled rain, but why, we could never figure out, because the rain was pouring down in torrents. We tried to crawl under the tarp, but as we pulled it over to one side, the person on the other side would start getting wet, and vice versa. Poor brother Amard got soaked as he was trying to bring his sleeping bag and paraphernalia under the tarp. Finally, we pitched our tent up in the woods in the dark and surprisingly spent the rest of the night in comfort. On August 3rd, the next morning, we had a late start. Finally packing our luggage and shoving off at about 11 a.m., we were in for constant walking with the canoes through the rocks. The scenery was beautiful, though. The rocks were larger. About midday, we went through a small gorge. The water flowed through a passage about six feet wide. The rocks on the side of the gorge went straight up and the water straight down. There were probably some big fish there, but we did not stop. It was constant go, go, go. It was during this day that we stopped for noon lunch at a beaver dam that was built across the river. We came upon several of these on our trip. Our noon lunch consisted of bouillon cubes and trout that we cut up into small pieces and dropped into the boiling water, this being a very delectable lunch. That evening, we stopped again at 7 p.m. at another beautiful campsite at the beginnings of the rapids. We had blueberries for dessert, blueberries in our bannock, and made blueberry jam for breakfast and pitched our tent as a precaution, but slept outside. The location of this campsite is between the second and third dams. We went to bed at 11 o'clock p.m. August 4th, Saturday. Father Bill got us up early again at 6 a.m. We had breakfast of blueberry pancakes, bacon, and jam started at about 9.30 a.m. We went through much more garbage as we began to call the rocks in Stony Rapids. We portaged around rapids after Brother Amard found a trail. We then went for several more miles looking for the second dam. We had passed a place that we concluded was merely a waterfall obstruction stretching across the river. It was here that we found the tripod, left by Dr. Calkins back in 1956. The map showed another dam that we were to come to. We kept looking for it. Finally, we came to an island. We had lunch, and it was at this place that the bull moose roared at Billy for getting the small stick for the coffee pot. While making the fire, the bull moose asked Billy to get a stick from which to hang the coffee pot over the fire. Finally, after much to do, here he came back with a very thin, scrawny-looking stick. The bull moose tried to put the coffee pot on and to prop it up, but the stick was just too weak and would not hold it. That was then the, when the bull moose roared. After much talk and discussion, starting with one point of reference and ending with another point of reference, we decided that we had missed the third dam and were farther than we anticipated. In fact, we had missed the third dam and were close to the bad portage. After coming to the second island, we were sure of it. Then we watched as the river went west. Where it turned south, we looked for the portage and found it, just as Carl Kidder had described it. We decided to camp there. As we found out later, we were very fortunate that we did. We took a walk down the trail about two miles, came back leisurely, cooked supper, and prepared for mass the next day. This campsite had once been the location of a lumber camp. There were very old ruins of two cabins. Also, there were raspberry bushes growing here that, we, that were probably planted years ago. This was the first grassy campsite that we had had. It was a memorable, memorable day in our trip, and after what we had gone through, we felt sure that the bad portage, as it was called, would not be very bad after what we had seen. At least we would be walking along a trail, or again, what loosely could be called a trail. Very innocently, expecting the best on the morrow, 
we said our rosary, watched the dying embers of the campfire, and drifted off at 11 p.m. Sunday morning, August 5th, was one to remember. We got up at 7 o'clock a.m. and prepared the canoe for an altar. We made a cross out of paddles just beyond the altar, then got out our mass kit that we had been carrying all this distance for this occasion. Father Schinner said the mass, Brother Amard, Father Malowitz, served as altar boys. It is hard to describe an occasion such as this. Here we were, in the middle of the wilderness. Without a doubt, mass had never been said here before, the site of an old lumber camp. What activities had gone on here years ago? And now the grass and the trees were taking over. The changes of the wilderness about us, the unchangeable mystery of the holy sacrifice of the mass before us. This was magnificent. This was beautiful. The vast cathedral, the vast cathedral of the pines all around us, the song of the birds providing the music. We felt like the early missionaries must have felt when coming to this land hundreds of years ago. They brought the word of God and the mass to the Indians. They too must have said mass out in the open this way. They too must have improvised. They too must have realized, as we did, that it is only through our holy religion, through the sacrifice of the mass, that every place becomes home, because in every place there is sacrifice, and in every place there is offered to my name, as the scripture tells us, a clean oblation. After the Mass, breakfast was in order, and again pancakes and bacon, garnishes with blueberries and raspberries. One of the jerry jugs being emptied of its original contents, our supply of Bisquick was transferred to it. None of us could understand how the big jug got emptied so soon. There were a few growled comments about the keeper of the booze, but as we all admitted, the load would be lighter. We were running out of sugar trying to make syrup for pancakes. Finally, everything was packed and we started on the bad portage about 11.15 a.m. We decided to make this portage by leapfrogging the canoes and packs. This method was used by the early voyagers. They would carry one load a certain distance down the trail and then go back for another, for another load. Then, then, then they would carry this load beyond the first one. They would go back for the first, carry that beyond the second, and in this way they would rest as they came back for the second load. We started out with high hopes that this would not be as bad as anticipated. The trail was not bad at first, and we made several trips back and forth. Then we ran into, into trouble. We could not see where the trail continued through a swamp. There were blazes on some trees. This was not a regular trail, but it was the only one visible, so we carefully followed the blazes up the rocky hill leading in the general direction of the river. After about 300 yards, we put the packs down and made our way back to the canoes. While getting ready to portage the canoes to the packs, we went a little further into the swamp and found the original trail going on into the direction we had originally followed. So back we went up the blaze trail, retrieved our packs, and came down to our original position. By this time, we were all tired, so it was decided that Father Malowitz and Father Shinners go up ahead and find out where the trail led. They did find a trail going down to the river in what seemed to be a hundred-foot steep cliff. It certainly was steep and very difficult, but when we finally came to the river, we found that we were perhaps in the middle of the portage, where there were waterfalls and rapids all around us. So again, we carried the packs back up the ledge to the trail and kept following it in a direction which seemed to be leading away from the river, but which actually was cutting across a bend in the river. It was now about five o'clock in the afternoon. We had been carrying packs and canoes up and down trails, over inclines, up steep banks, down other banks, over trees and under trees, in all positions and in all types of situations. In fact, we were not quite sure where we were, so following an old custom, we learned on the trail when things got rough. We sat down in the canoes or on the bank in the middle of the forest, took out the jerry jug, and had a drink while somebody started to sing wagon wheels. This was the part which later on made the brother remark, when things got the toughest, we all seemed to have the best time of all. So still singing, we hoisted out packs and went strung on down the old logging trail, watching our compass, following a westerly course, looking for the turn to the south. Finally, we found what, some like, what looked like some broken twigs from the previous expedition. 
However, it was a very faint trail. Many ferns had overgrown it, and after much discussion, we decided that this was it, and we followed this through the swamps and around the ridges. Finally, as we were about to give up, we gave to that 100-foot steep grade down the river. We loaded both canoes and all the gear and started down. Father Malowitz was in front, and this grade was so steep, over 45 degrees. The canoe got away from us and practically ran over him on its course down the cliff. Unassisted, it crashed down 40 feet and finally got lodged between some trees. After much pushing and to-do, we finally unloaded the canoes, carried the packs on the trail, the end of the portage, arriving there about 7 o'clock p.m. At this spot, there were some poles rigged up under the pines, showing that it had been used by trappers in the past. We used the same poles for our tent. Supper was soon being prepared, an old favorite, bacon, beans, and cornbread, and everyone's spirits rose. We had come to the end of the bad portage. On our maps, this portage had been indicated as about two miles. We all judged that it was at least three or probably four or more. Monday, August 6th, dawned bright and clear, as we did not notice it until about 9 o'clock when we were rousted out of our bunks by the hot toddy served a Malowitz style. We got going about 11.15. The canoeing was good, finally. We covered about 6 or 7 miles to the next portage. We found one good spot for trout at a little rapids. Willie caught three or four nice trout. Biggest was about 16 inches. We had fish bouillon for lunch. Brother Amard caught his first trout here. We found the portage easily at the right of the falls. At this falls, the river narrows at a rocky ledge, and there were two iron spikes driven into the rocks where a logging load had been made at one time across this point. We found blazes on the trees on the logging trail that cuts to the left beyond the corduroy, corduroy mucky section. We camped across the river from the trail under the beautiful spreading birch tree. There were many rocks at this point, there were two big rock piles out in the river, which at one time had been used for a bridge across the river for the logging crews. This was Willie's birthday, so while we prepared supper, we told him to go out and have himself a ball catching fish. This he did. He caught three beautiful specks. The biggest was 19 inches or 20 inches long and weighed one and a half to two pounds. When he came back, his face glowing with joy and exhilaration of catching those fish. We had supper ready. A special supper, supper this evening. Oh yes, we had bacon, beans, and bannock, but as a special treat, we had a birthday cake, a pecan and date mix that we had carried all this distance for this occasion, even with the candles, which had become rather squashed, but nevertheless still served their purpose. We drank a toast and sang happy birthday, and Willie overcome with emotion, admitted that this was perhaps the most outstanding birthday of his life. Even overshadowing his birthday of the previous year, when we portaged 15 miles from the Lamartre River in the Northwest Territory. That evening we had a fine campfire, and despite the joy of his birthday, much criticism was handed to Willie, because he had allowed the movie camera to become fouled up. The dampness caused the film to stick inside, and it had to be taken out and rebound as best we could. We found out later that much of it was damaged beyond repair. August 7th, Tuesday. Again found us on the river about 11.45 and encountering nice canoeing waters for a change. We then caught several nice speckled trout in a pool before we set out. Then, then we made good time. We walked through two short rapids. Bill saw a nice trout jump, so we stopped and picked up three or four nice fish for lunch. We stopped about 2 p.m. for fish bouillon and tea. It was at this point that Brother Amard caught a nice 15-incher right off the campsite. The exasperating thing about this was that he caught the fish after Malowitz had tried to catch one for about 15 minutes, and also the others had tried without success. Brother Amard then took the pole, and after a few casts, came up with a nice 15-inch speckled trout. Pictures were taken of this at that time. Finally, we came to the last portage around Schist Falls about 4 in the afternoon. This portage was about one mile in length. It was clean and good, being a welcome change from what we'd had before. On the way back, we followed the river, looking at the falls, walking up the rocks, taking pictures of the beautiful scenery that lay all around us. It was one of the most scenic spots that we had, that we had seen. The river carved its way through these layers of rocks down to the 
Lake Superior shoreline. After portaging all our duffel, we embarked at the mouth of the river and went out into the waters of Lake Superior at 6.30 p.m. The wind was whipping up a bit, so as we paddled cautiously around a point of land and about a mile down the lake, encamped. It had been a beautiful day, a sunny, warm day. The best bannock of the trip was baked that evening with raspberries. We broke out the potatoes, which had been carrying for this, which we had been carrying for this special occasion, and had bacon, potatoes, and baked fish for supper. An extra ration of brandy was mated out for our celebration. This evening was a memorable one because the wind was blowing rather hard, and our campfire was one of the biggest we'd ever had. There was wood of all kinds around. Logs had been thrown up by the waves, so we had a real campfire burning, and the wind made it a sight to behold. The weather conditions looked rather turbulent, so we pitched the tent but decided to sleep out and use it only if necessary. The wind came up from the southeast about midnight. Again, someone yelled, Rain! There was a rush for the tent, and the tent was also rushing. It had not been adequately secured and was flapping in the gale. The top tarp had flown off, and all the connections had loosened up. Finally, Father Schinner secured it, and the three voyagers spent the rest of the night comfortably. I slept outside that evening, with this small plastic tarp over me, as an added experiment to see if it could be done without any degree of com- with any degree of comfort. Even though it rained that night, I was able to pass the night rather comfortably with only a few wet spots. The dawn came cold and gray. There was a strong southeast wind, still bringing rain. After breakfast of bacon and pancakes and prunes, we started out about 11 a.m. So far on our trip, no food was ever left over at any meal. This Wednesday, August 8th, we bucked strong, head, we bucked strong headwinds in the morning until about 1.30 or 2 p.m. The waves were rather high with one and two feet waves in among three, four, and five feet rollers. We stopped at 2.30 for lunch. It was a nice spot with many rocks and stones around. We got out our food packs, took pictures, set our breviary, and rested for a while. The scenery along the shore was beautiful. The rocks jutting out formed a little harbor, spreading back into the forest and timber beyond. In the afternoon, we stopped at Ganley Harbor. A small log shack was still there, probably built by trappers. It looked like a good harbor for a marina. We pushed on to Pipe River and camped there for the night. After beaching our canoes, we followed a trail to the old cabins, suddenly, evidently an old logging camp. We saw two rather strange fireplaces here with high chimneys about 12 feet high. We guessed that they had been used for forges for the saws in the logging camps. We spent a pleasant hour exploring around and talking about the history of the place. The remains of the logging camps were actually a very recent history to the overall history of the place. Actually, the logging camps were set up in these areas about 50 years ago. However, over 300 years ago, the fur trade was in full swing along this major highway, the North Superior Shore. Beginning about 1680 and lasting until at least 1875, The north shore of Lake Superior was a well-traveled highway for the bridges of Montreal canoes that made their way from Quebec past Montreal and westward around the north Superior shore, and then following the river routes onto the western coast of our country, following the trails blazed by Alexander Mackenzie and others. In traveling along the shore of Lake Superior, it was customary for the voyagers in the brigades of canoes to paddle for a certain length of time, and then pause to have a pipe stop. At these stops, they would light up their pipes and enjoy a rest. This is how the Pipe River got its name, and we could see how it lent itself to this very well, by being protected by a reef of rocks on the shore, and also it was a good camping spot because of grassy places along the shore. It was hard to believe that in this wild, neglected spot, there had been so much activity for so many years actually 200 years. The canoe brigades followed the Lake Superior shore every year, taking up the trade goods to the Indians and bringing back the furs, beaver fox, and treasures of the Indians. We had a special meal this evening, ranch-style potatoes and meat with beans and spaghetti sauce, and of course bacon and bannock with blueberries and raspberries. There was a beautiful sunset. The evening sky was clear. A campfire was lit. 
Discussion started and finally silence settled over the scene around 11 p.m. The next morning, we were rousted out early again by the early riser, and we all got up about 6 a.m. in order to get an early start and take advantage of the calm on the lake in the morning before the wind came up. We had a quick breakfast of leftovers and prunes and left about 7.30 a.m. There was an east wind against which we had to paddle, and the waves progressively got bigger. Although this made it more difficult to travel, it did not make it impossible. The day was beautiful and sunny, but the wind was cold. We passed Pilot Harbor, observing the beacon that was set up there, then stopped at a small river, the mouth of which was very beautiful. We took pictures, had lunch, tried a little fishing up in a rocky stream. We had Johnny Cake beans and prunes for lunch. After saying our office, we started again at 3 o'clock p.m., past Point Issachor, and then started past the Palisades, which are beautiful rocky cliffs going up to about 500 feet in places and going down to the edge of the lake. The cliffs were wooded to some degree at least. The pines seemingly anchored themselves on bare rock. The Palisades extend about five or six miles along the shore, and certainly for a large boat it would be very dangerous in a storm in this area because there's no harbor whatsoever, and no place to hide on the beach except the rocky cliffs. With a canoe, however, even in a storm, it would be possible to bring it up high enough to ride out the storm. The scenery was magnificent. We paddled slowly along the edge of the palisades, taking pictures, looking up, stopping different places, and gathering rocks. We took some pictures of two herons nesting on a small island. When we came to our campsite for the evening, a ledge of black rock. Mattresses and bedrolls were laid out on the rocks, fire was started, and soon another tasty supper of you-know-what was being prepared. Campfire was not quite as big this evening because it was more difficult to bring in the logs over the black, slippery rocks. Friday, our last full day on the lake. August 10th was nice and clear. We started out at 9.30 a.m. The water was very calm all day. We paddled through dead calm waters, and the heat of the sun was blinding and very uncomfortable. We could see how days like this in the tropics, that would extend for any length of time, could drive a person to madness. We explored the mouth of the University River after passing Dog Harbor. The harbor, by the way, is very fine and visible with a beacon marker. The University River comes out into the lake in a narrow five-foot-wide stream on the west end of a big sandbank. We went upstream about three-quarters of a mile, looking for Devison Falls, but did not find it. We did fish along the way in some of the deep holes, but no strikes. It was very evident that this river was much shallower than the Pukawa River at this time of the year, and we were happy that we had decided to not take the University River on this trip. We gathered rock samples along the river, and it was here that we were privileged to note a geologic story written in the rocks along the river. We had talked many times on this trip of the glacier that had covered the country and receded along this very ridge of Lake Superior, leaving what was called Lake Algonquin, which covered the area, now covered by the Great Lakes in Michigan, Wisconsin, and parts of Illinois and Canada. The glacier ice was thousands of feet thick, and as it forced its way from the north, it ground over the basic igneous rocks of this region, carrying with it also great rocks, and with the pressure that it exerted, it would grind these rocks on the rocky floor ledge, gouging them out, and in some places leaving scratches, the markings of the glaciers. It was at the University River that we observed these jagged marks running along the rocks, showing how the glacier had formed this phenomenon. It may be well to note here that along this shoreline there are very many beautiful small, small harbors where a small boat could land. It would be possible to spend wonderful vacations here, camping along this section. There are many blueberries and raspberries found along this shore, and tracks of moose and deer and other wild animals in abundance. Past the University River, we went along to the shore to find the beautiful sandbanks and the rocky ledges intermingled with the green of the trees. For lunch, we stopped at one of the idyllic little harbors with a 200-foot beach, extra wonderful sand, big rock ledges, and water of clear azure blue.
The overall scene gave the appearance of something you would dream about, but really never expect to find in your lifetime. We shoved off about 4 o'clock p.m. after having a swim and washing up. We then traversed Minicana Point to Door Point. We then traversed from Door Point to Gross Cape, or Perkwakura Point, as it is written on the map. In this traverse, we passed the Indian village, or what had originally been an Indian site. Now only the beach remains, and some ruins of cabins. The Indians have moved further down. We rounded Gross Cape, and then within sight of the lighthouse of Michipicotin Harbor, we made camp. This was the camp that we had been looking for, the last camp before the close of our trip. It was 7.30 p.m. when we came on the shore. There was much wood in the place and also much, much rock. The lighthouse was about 200 or 300 yards to our left and above us providing us a very pretty picture. We shot the works for supper this evening, having two rations of beans and also extra rations of bannock, raspberry, and blueberry, and of course extra portions of the contents of our jerry jug, which had been hoarded for just this final evening of the trip. After the, summer dish after the supper dishes were cleared away, puffing on our pipes and cigars and sipping our hot toddy, we mutually congratulated ourselves on having practically completed the most difficult trip of our canoeing careers. Everyone was in high spirits, and by now hardened to the rigors of the trail. We slept like babes in the woods. Rising about 7 a.m., we had a leisurely breakfast on this Saturday, August 11th, again with extra rations of bannock, bacon, and grog. We washed up and changed to fresh clothes. The wind began rising from the west, which made us glad that we had rounded the point the previous evening when it was calm. Then we paddled to Michipokan Harbor in radiant spirits, arriving in the morning about 10 a.m. We pulled up the canoes to the store where our car was supposed to be, and Mrs. Lyman Buck, who was managing the store, phoned her husband at White River Airlines, who brought Father Melowitz's car from Wawa in about 25 minutes. We packed our gear aboard and left about 11.30 in the morning for Little Current and Mission Island. I might mention here that Lyman Buck is a very fine man who owns the only store in Michipicotin Harbor. He is also an immigration officer there and very helpful in every way. He is also connected in some way with the White River Airlines people who also are very accommodating. They would be very help happy to help us plan further trips in this area. On the way to Wawa, we piled... We, we plied Lyman Buck with many questions. In the course of his answers, he did mention that although we had been in this area for many years, he did not remember anybody else ever making a trip down the Pukawa and then coming in around the lake to Michipicotin Harbor. As far as he knew, we were the only ones who had made the trip. After a very interesting ride along the road to Michipicotin Harbor, we came to Wawa. That was the end of that particular journey, which we had titled From Widgeon to Wawa. However, we were not yet home, and we had several extra days, so it was a nice windy day. We decided to drive to Española and Whitefish Falls and then go to Mission Island, the famous island owned by a group of priests, of which Father Malowitz is a member. We came to the landing where we were to take off for Mission Island. Don McGregor's was a little under the weather, so he could not take us out to the island. However, we finally took Pete McGregor's boat and Bill operating the motor, towing both the canoes, we hovered into side of the famous island. All were in high spirits and we had a big late supper of steak, which we had not tasted since the beginning of our trip, and baked potatoes and vegetable salad. After supper, there was a big discussion of the justification of taking waterless river trips, pursuing happiness, and life on other planets and other universes. Also, a few drinks were consumed in the process. We finally went to bed at 1.30 in the morning. Sunday, August 12th, we were up at 8 a.m. All three of us offered mass in the St. Robert's Chapel, and after attempt at fishing and again more conversation, we finally realized that our vacation was over. We crossed from Canada at the Dalt, realizing that this was very unlikely that this was very likely the last time we would take the car ferry there since the new bridge was almost finished. We stopped at the Stella Maris on the way and our final evening was spent comfortably planning future trips. What would it be? 
a pack trip with burrows into the mountains of British Columbia, a hunting trip for sheep in the Wukon Territory, a canoe trip down the Johnny Ho to the Great Bear, the Anderson River to the Arctic Ocean. But whatever it would be, one thing was certain. The Northland was calling again, and what better way to close than with the l'envoi of Robert W. Service. We talked of yesteryears, of trails and treasure, of men who played the game and lost or won, of mad stampedes of toil beyond all measure, of campfire comfort when the day was done. We talked of sullen nights by moon dogs haunted, of bird and beast and tree, of rod and gun, of boat and tent, of hunting trip enchanted, beneath the wonder of the midnight sun, of bloody-footed dogs that gnawed the traces, of prison seas wind-lashed and winter-locked. The ice-gray dawn was pale upon our faces, yet still we filled the cup, and still we talked. The city street was dimmed, we saw the glitter of moon-picked brilliance on the virgin snow, and down the drifted canyon, heard the bitter, relentless slogan of the winds of woe. The city was forgot, and parka skirted, we trod that leagueless land that once we knew. We saw stream past, down valleys glacier-girded, the wolf-worn legions of the caribou. We smoked our pipes, or scenes of triumph dwelling, of deeds of daring, dire defeats we talked, and other tales that lost not in the retelling, ere to our beds uncertainly we walked. And so, dear friends, in gentler valleys roaming, perhaps when on my printed page you look, your fancies by the firelight may go homing to that lone land that happily you forsook. And if perchance you hear the silence calling, the frozen music of star-yearning heights, or dreaming see the sands of silver trawling across the sky's abyss on vasty nights, you may recall that sweep of savage splendor, that land that measures each man at his worth, and feel in memory half fierce, half tender, the brotherhood of men that know the North.